This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra. Ooh. I heard somebody go, ooh. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Ezra chapter 8 is what we're going to be at uh, tonight. Uh, we're continuing our series talking about fasting. Uh, again, kind of the beginning of the uh, uh, message, we'll just have a brief overview of what Bible fasting, spiritual fasting looks like for us. Um, and then I want to talk to you tonight about fasting for the next generation. Um, we as Christians need to think deliberately about passing our faith on to the next generation. It doesn't happen by accident. It's not something that's going to just automatically happen. Uh, we need to be deliberate uh, in the passing on of our faith, and we're going to be taking a look at that uh, here tonight. Ezra chapter 8, uh, we're going to start in verse uh, number 21, just to give you a little bit of a context of what we're looking at here uh, in the book of Ezra. Um, Israel has been taken in, in captivity. Uh, they're currently living in exile. Uh, Ezra, uh, basically the children of Israel are given throughout the book of Ezra the opportunity to go back and to rebuild the temple. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, they're given the ability to go back and build the wall uh, around the city. Uh, in the book of Ezra, they're given the capability to go back to uh, the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Uh, there's a new uh, ruler that's in Persia that allows them to go back and uh, basically funds the process of the rebuilding uh, of the temple that we have. Uh, they're going from Mesopotamia to Jerusalem, which is a journey of about 800 miles or so. Not everyone would make this, this trip back to Jerusalem. Many people found uh, the captivity life was actually a lot easier than traveling 800 miles to go back and rebuild the temple. And so some people decided to stay um, in captivity, uh, despite the fact that they were given the opportunity to go back and to uh, rebuild the temple there. Uh, and so we find people here on this journey in the book of Ezra, uh, getting ready to head back to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And so we find ourselves in Ezra chapter 8, uh, starting verse number 21. Ezra chapter 8, verse number 21. Ezra speaking, he says, and then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all of our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this. And I love the, the phrase that he uses here. And he was entreated of us. It's interesting when he starts here at the beginning in verse number 21, I proclaimed a fast that we might afflict ourselves. 
When we talk about fasting from a spiritual perspective, it's reducing the intake of our food and replacing these activities with the exercise of prayer and preoccupation with spiritual concerns. Again, all this is review, so we're going to kind of clip through this uh, beginning part uh, fairly quickly. The whole purpose of fasting is that I would take my meal times and I would say, I'm not going to eat lunch today because I want to spend time with God in the Word. I want to spend time with God in prayer. I want to spend time with God praying specifically for a particular need that I have, uh, a particular burden that I'm carrying. Uh, And basically, I'm choosing to purposely, uh, in the words of Ezra, afflict myself. I'm willing to purposely be uncomfortable uh, for a period of time, uh, for a desire to be closer to God. Biblical fasting always deals with food. Uh, Again, some people might have said, I'm taking a social media fast, and that would definitely be helpful for everybody to do. Um, I'm I'm taking, uh, you know, an elevator fast. I'm going to take the stairs instead of the elevator. Definitely good for your health, for sure. The Bible word for fasting always deals with food. The Greek word that's used in the New Testament uh, is translated literally into one who has not eaten, one who is empty, or one who is hungry. Uh, So again, the idea that I can say, I'm going to fast today from the use of uh, my cell phone would definitely be beneficial to you for, for sure. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about biblical fasting. We're talking about dealing with food specifically. Three types of fasts that we see in the Bible. Uh, normal fast is a intake of no solid foods, only liquids and water uh, during that period of time. If you're going for a longer period of time in your fast, I'd highly encourage you to do a normal fast. You're going to need uh, water. You're going to need some energy. You're going to need some uh, some protein, some carbs, and things like that. And so for me, if I'm fasting for an extended period of time, I might uh, use uh, juice smoothies, protein shakes, things like that, but won't actually eat any solid food. Uh, that would be an example of a normal fast. Partial fast, we see most common, the one that we see in the Bible, uh, most famous one that we would see in the Bible would be uh, the Daniel fast. Daniel says, I'm going to set aside a certain type of food for a period of time. So you might say, hey, I'm going to do without bread this week, or I'm going to go without meat this week. Uh, in the Daniel fast, he says, I'm going to do without meat this week. I'm going to focus only on eating vegetables to prove a point uh, that my God is sufficient. And so that would be an example of a fast where they did without a certain type of food uh, for a period of time. That would be an example of a partial fast. Absolute fast that we see in the Bible is no food, no water, uh, no intake of anything whatsoever. If you're planning on doing this, I highly recommend that you do it for one meal, uh, maybe two at a max, because your body needs food and water to live. You require calories to live. Your body requires at least water to stay alive. Uh, If you try to do an absolute fast for a couple of days, on the second day, you're going to have little to no energy and you're going to feel like garbage. Uh, By day three, you're probably going to wind up bedridden or in the hospital. I don't recommend this type of fast uh, because generally it doesn't accomplish uh, what we want it to accomplish. Uh, Again, we talked about supernatural absolute fast that we see in the Bible where three men, Elijah, Uh, Moses and Jesus Christ fasted for 40 days with no food, no water. Don't try that. It was a supernatural fast. You will definitely die uh, without a doubt. And when you die from a supernatural absolute fast that God did not sustain you for 40 days, we're not going to be talking about how great and godly you are. Uh, We're going to be talking about what of an idiot you were to try to think that you could make it 40 days without eating or drinking. So don't try that. Not a good thing at all. That's kind of the quick primer on fasting. If you want to know more about it, our first two messages that we had are available on our podcast where we talked about fasting more in depth this case. But here's the idea behind fasting. There was always a reason and purpose behind it. 
when we talk about spiritual fasting, I'm not fasting to lose weight. I'm not fasting to try to uh, take care of my, my, my skin better. I'm not fasting so that my blood sugar can get regulated and things like that. All those might be helpful. All those might even be a reason to fast, but that's not what spiritual fasts are for. It's always a desire to be closer to God. It's a desire to have the heart and mind of God. Uh, it's a desire to, uh, to know God on a greater degree and a greater level. It always has to do with the proximity of the presence of God, always. In this case here, Ezra is leading a group of people back into Jerusalem, and they know that the journey is going to be tough. And he says through this process, I didn't want to ask the king for any help because I'd already told the king that God was going to supply and God was going to meet our needs. So here's what I did. I fasted and asked God to provide for us. And so he says, we're all going to declare a fast so that we can hear from God, so that we can be close to God, and so we can see God provide for us in this way. And it's interesting, the, the fast that they deal with here in this particular passage of Scripture, he says, we want to fast specifically to make sure that we're headed the right direction, uh, that God's going to provide a straight way for us, and also we want to fast for our little ones. It was interesting to me as I read through the, the book of Ezra and this idea of fasting that he would say we want to fast not only that God would provide for us and meet our needs, but we also want to fast for our children as well. As children grow up in church, we've seen over the last 20 years that the majority, uh, when it comes time for adulthood, the majority of Christians that were raised in a Christian home are throwing off, quote, their parents' religion and choosing to go their own way. Uh, this has become an epidemic uh, in our society over the last 20 years. People who grow up and they realize, hey, my parents made me go to church. I don't have a desire to go to church on my own. Uh, I no longer have to go to church. Uh, this kind of struck me for a while when I turned 18, uh, moved out of the house, joined the Navy uh, right out of high school. Um, I, went to, I went to chapel during boot camp because it was the one hour out of the week that nobody would scream and yell at you. Uh, and so I thought, man, if I can catch a break there. Uh, and then I, I, th I thought I was smarter than everybody else, um, that I thought I could go to chapel and sleep during chapel and get some extra, like an extra hour of sleep. Little did I know they have somebody there watching you to make sure that you don't fall asleep and poking you if you do. So that didn't work out well at all. But I went to chapel when I was in boot camp, but after I got out of boot camp, man, I was, I was done with it. Nobody was calling on Sundays to see if I was going to church. Nobody was asking me about my walk with God. I kind of felt like I was free, uh, if you will. But then there came this lingering feeling of I should probably be doing something on Sundays because that's how I was raised. And so I would go to church probably, I don't know, once uh, every month, every couple of months, maybe once every three months, just because it was, quote, the right thing to do. And I kind of carried that on until my wife and I met. Uh, we began to, to date. We got married, and we kind of thought once we get married, hey, if we're planning on having a family, we should probably, like, be in church because I think that's what, like, Christian families are supposed to do. And so we should probably get to church. And we began to attend church sporadically. Uh, and, and, again, when you attend church half-heartedly and sporadically, you never see the type of results that you want to see. Just like if you attended the gym uh, sporadically and half-heartedly, you're probably not going to see results there either. And then when God gave his children, it's a matter of like, oh, no, um, we have other people that are watching us that are going to follow in our footsteps, and we got to make sure that we get our act together. And so God became to, to put a burden on our hearts that, hey, if you're going to do this, you need to do it not for your family, but for yourself first and foremost. 
And so I kind of had, I guess, if you will, a crisis of faith as a a 22, 23-year-old man of like, hey, I need to either latch on to my faith or I need to let it go. And for all of our children, if you're, you're here tonight, tonight and you have children, your children will always have to come to a point in their life where they have to make a decision for themselves as an adult. Will I own my faith and make it my own, or will I call it my parents' faith? And the goal for every parent is that we would have our children own their faith for themselves. Now, it's really important, and again, this is delicate, and, and books have been written about this, about helping your kids navigate their faith. What we don't want to do is we don't want to tell our kids, hey, don't ask questions, just be quiet. The Bible says this, and you just need to obey it. That doesn't work. As parents, we want to tell our kids, uh, you know, hey, you're going to do this because I'm the dad, and that's what I said. That works up until about maybe ages eight or nine, but after that, we need to explain to our children why we make the decisions that we do. We need to give our kids the environment to question, and, and again, this is going to terrify some people. We need to give our kids the space to even doubt their faith sometimes, because they're going to have to come to a conclusion at some point on their own of if, is this real or not? Will I latch on to this faith or not? And again, we as parents want to prepare our kids for that. that. This isn't mommy and daddy's faith. This is God speaking directly to you. This isn't what we believe, and you should probably believe that too. We don't say, oh, well, you know, we grew up in America, and Americans are Christians. This is why we go to church. That's a terrible thing to say. We want our kids to struggle with difficult questions about their faith. We want our kids to ask questions like, hey, if God didn't create everything, how did everything else get here? For everybody who's not a Christian, what do they believe about how the world was created? Hey, isn't evolution plausible? Oh, I don't know. Let's unpack that and look into it. Hey, let's me and you do a study on Biblical creation versus evolution, and do these two things fit together? I know many Christian parents who are well-meaning who says, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to believe the Bible and the rest of it is lies, but we need to give our kids the ability to grasp and even grapple with sometimes these difficult truths from the Bible. One of the things that I love about our teen programs right now, they're going uh, through a, a series entitled Avoiding Confusion where they're talking about big topics that the Christian teens have to deal with. Uh, the last couple of weeks, they've been talking about abortion. Like, as a teenager, nobody ever talked to me about that other than to say, it's wrong, don't do it. They're struggling with, they're talking about things uh, like same-sex marriage and same-sex attraction and same-sex relationship in our teen group. I'm thankful for that. Let's equip them to have the tools to have difficult conversations because they're going to be faced with this. We have to prepare them appropriately. I believe we as parents need to fast and pray for our children. If you don't, you're missing the boat. Ezra here called for a fast of all of Israel that they would collectively Pray and fast that God would make their way straight and that God would care for their little ones. When we talk about fasting, fasting proves a lot of things. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Fasting proves that we're willing to make sacrifices. Fasting says I'm willing to 
desire to be closer with God that I'm willing to skip lunch today and skip dinner tonight to be close to God. Hey, I'm willing to do without for a, a period of time if it means hearing from God, being closer than, to God, having a heart for God, killing my sin, whatever it is, I'm willing to make sacrifices. Fasting proves that we're personally invested. It's one thing to say, hey, brother, I'm going to pray with you on that. And I fear sometimes Christians, when they say things like that, don't actually pray, and that hurts my heart. Don't ever be that type of Christian. If you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, pray for them. Write it down if you need to. Put a reminder on your phone. No lie for me. If I tell somebody I'm going to pray for them, either write it down on a 3 by 5 cord or grab my phone and say, hey, remind me tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. to pray for Joe's job interview. If you're going to tell somebody you're going to pray for them, pray for them. Sometimes I'm terrible at remembering. I don't have anything to write with. So I said, hey, let's just pray right now. Can we pray right now? Let's just stop what we're doing right now and just pray about that right here. It's another thing to say, hey, I'm going to pray for you on that. It's another thing to say, hey, tomorrow at lunchtime, I'm not going to eat lunch, but I'm just going to pray specifically with you on that situation. I'm going to fast tomorrow. No lie, in, in 45 years, I've had probably three people who have ever said that to me, unprompted. I've asked people before, hey, would you be willing to skip lunch tomorrow and pray with me on this particular situation? My wife and I, I said, hey, tomorrow we're going to fast for lunch over something that's going on in our family or something like that. that that's one thing. But to have another person say, hey, I'm, tomorrow at lunchtime, I'm going to fast and pray with you on that. That's a really big deal. That shows a personal investment. That's going to require sacrifice on my part to be willing to do that. Fasting and prayer always proves that our trust is in God alone. I was talking with a friend this past week, and the conversation was like, hey, if, if God already knows, and God already has a sovereign plan, and God's going to already figure out whether he's going to answer my prayer or not, why bother even praying? It's a great question. I mean, again, people who are struggling with their faith need to grapple with difficult questions like that. One of the things that I said was when you pray, you're announcing to God, I recognize that the ability to change this situation lays squarely on your shoulders and you are the only person in the universe that can do anything with this. I'm confessing that to you by praying because if I thought I could do something about it, I would. But by praying, I'm confessing my dependence and need upon God to work and move in ways that I can't work and move. So if we're gonna lead the next generation, it's interesting when we think about the next generation of Christianity. We think of the children and teens that are in our, our church. Interesting, we sometimes lump our teens into the quote, the next generation of Christianity. I'd go so far as to say they are this generation of Christianity already. I, I had um, a good friend who is, is single adults were going to a conference called uh, Next Generation Christianity. It's just like, these are single adults. They're not next generation Christianity. They're this generation Christianity. Single adults aren't less of less worth or value to the kingdom or to the church because they don't have, they're not attached to a spouse. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Kids don't use the word dumb, use the word foolish instead. <laughs> I forgot there's kids here. Uh, kids, we don't use the word dumb or stupid. Those are unkind words. We use Bible words like foolish, okay? So, it's foolish to think that there are certain people based on their marital status or of, of less value to the kingdom. That's just not true or to say that they're, they're the coming generation of Christian leaders. No, no, no. We need to be ready now. 
We need to be training our four and five-year-olds to be Christian leaders because our 17 and 18-year-olds are already this generation of Christianity. So as we begin to look at how do we prepare next generation Christianity, some of you might be sitting here tonight going, whew, my job's already done. My kids are already raised. I got like grandkids now. I'm just enjoying that part of life. And my kids are raised. This doesn't really apply to me. Or you might be sitting here tonight saying, hey, I don't have any kids at all. This doesn't apply to me. Let me just tell you this, that training children for the next generation of Christianity is a community-wide project. It, everybody did. Ezra didn't proclaim a fast for the people who had kids to fast for their own kids. Think about that for a second. He proclaimed a fast for everyone to fast for everyone's children that were part of the children of Israel. So when we think about raising up leaders, we, this is a community project. All of us have to be involved. First thing we have to do is we have to give direction. Take a look at verse number 21. I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before God to seek of him a right way for us. That phraseology that's used there can, could be translated into English to mean a way free of obstacles, uh, a straight path that's been cleared. Hey, we're asking that God would provide a direction for us that's clear of obstacles. We as adults have the opportunity to point children in the right direction towards God and to clear the path for them. We have the opportunity to allow them to go around roadblocks that you and I might have encountered in our Christian growth. We have a responsibility to teach them the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter six. Turn back there in your Bible. We're already in the book of Ezra. Keep your finger here. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4 is what's referred to as the Shema passage. This was part of the Jews' daily prayers that they would pray, verses uh, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest in thy way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. First thing we're commanded to do here is we need to teach them to love God. And let me just tell you this. Again, you might be sitting here today saying, I don't have kids, this doesn't apply to me. Stop. This 100% applies to you even if you don't have children because there are children here tonight seated in this auditorium that are watching you right now. And there's kids that are watching to see adults that are on the edge of their seat with a pen and paper out, flipping through the Bible, scratching their head, underlining stuff in their Bible. And then there's kids watching people that are scrolling on their phone waiting for this to be over with. 
And whoever you are, you're setting an example for children on how to worship God. So be aware of that. One of the things that I love, 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 love about who we call it. We have so many people who do not have children that serve in children's ministry and love kids. Love kids. And it's, here's the thing. Look, if you got kids that were changing your kid's diaper in the nursery, you should take a turn in the nursery. Like, that's just, that's just a decent thing to do, right? But if you don't have kids in the nursery, why would you wipe some other kids behind? Like, why? You know why? Because you love Jesus and you love other people. And we teach children how to love God by the way that we teach them. And to see single adults, married couples that don't have kids, serving in children's ministry, teaching kids to love God, man, that's, that's so huge. That's precisely what we're talking about, teaching them to love God. But teaching doesn't just take place here in this building. Teaching takes place throughout the entire week. As you interact with your children at home, as you interact with other children on your street, that teaches them how to love God. We have to teach them how to love God and love God's word. Again, your attention to preaching is teaching other people how important it is. I grew up in a church where the preaching of the Bible was secondary to fellowship. People endured preaching so that the preaching could be over with and we could have pie or we could have cake or we could sit around and talk or we could laugh or we could sit on cars in the parking lot. As a teenager, I was told, I wasn't told, I was taught that if you endure a 10-minute terribly put-together devotion on a Wednesday night from a, quote, youth leader, if you could just endure that 10 minutes, you could play basketball for an hour and a half afterwards. And no lie, I was the best at bringing kids to teen Bible study, right? Hey, dude, we got a full-size basketball court. We can play indoors in the middle of winter. All you got to do is sit and listen to a 10-minute talk from the Bible, and we're home free, right? And that taught me the importance of the Word of God. The Word of God is a roadblock to, to getting to what you actually want out of life. We can't live like that. When we started who we call a... Um, we, uh, the majority of people didn't come on Sunday nights. And so we would have, you know, I don't know, 40 people on a Sunday morning, and we have like 10 or 12 on Sunday night. Uh, and so my thought was the majority of people in our church don't come on Sunday night, they don't come on Wednesday night. So I'm going to give them a lot of Bible on Sunday morning to make up for the fact that we don't have Sunday school, they're not coming on Sunday night, and they're not coming on Wednesday night. So I would preach, uh, you know, not 35, 45 minutes. I would preach, you know, 45 minutes, 55 minutes, maybe even sometimes an hour and my wife's like, people don't want to hear lots of preaching. And again, you read all these church growth articles about, you know, uh, the, the appropriate sermon length. And the majority of people, you know, can watch one episode of a, a television show. So average attention span, 35 to 40 minutes. Don't go over that because you begin to lose people. Uh, and so I'm looking at that and going, this is garbage. I'm not, I'm not a television show. I'm, I'm teaching people the word of God. And so I, I would just preach longer. And what I found, this is the craziest thing ever. The longer that I preached, the more people would come. And I thought, in no lie, 
I, I, and there came a point where I finally just like, my wife would say, hey, how, how long is tonight's message? I don't know. I really don't. Like, it, it could be, you know, I have a half page of notes, but that means nothing, you know? I mean, like, it, <laughs> half page of notes could last me 90 minutes. I don't know. But here's what I found, is people that really love God's word weren't watching the clock to think to themselves like, oh my goodness, it's getting kind of late. It's almost lunchtime. I got to get out of here. They weren't thinking that. They were thinking, I love to hear God's word. And so I just took it upon myself to just preach the Bible regardless of how long it took. Now there's times where I'll take messages and split them into two parts. And uh, like this morning's message, uh, the covenants and circumcision and stuff like that. That was originally supposed to be one message, uh, but I began to look at it, I was like, this is going to be like a two-hour message, and I don't want to do that, so I chopped it in half. But uh, honestly, at the end of the day, if you don't love God's Word, and you're not okay sitting listening to an hour of preaching from the Bible, this probably isn't the best church for you. Just honest. And, and no lie, there's been people who've come before who said, hey, message way too long, we can't sit for that long, our, our kids won't, won't sit for that long, and that's fine. Again, wherever you want to be. But I believe in the preaching and teaching of God's word is better than a television show that you're watching. Because again, you and I will sit and watch te- television shows like a, I'm watching a documentary on X, you know, and I, I get done with it, it like 45 minutes, and she's like, oh, I should totally go to bed. And I reach for the remote, and as I do, it's like next episode starting in five, <laughs> four, three, two. And I'm like, oh, I got one more episode. <laughs> And then I get to the end of it, and it's like, and, you know, and then he said, <gasps> and then the credits roll, and it's just like, oh, man, you reach for the remote, it's just like, five, four, three, it's like, oh, look, we can do that for hours and not bat an eye at it. Why do we get, like, uh, i got to get up and stretch my legs after 35 minutes of preaching? Come on. We need to teach our kids to love the Word of God. Amen. I remember as a kid thinking, like, oh, I like hearing lots of... Bible teaching. My parents would tell me, hey, write down all the words and things that you don't understand, and we'll talk about it on the way home. And I was just like, yes. Uh, finally, I can make my case. And I found, finally realized again, as like a 10-year-old boy, there wasn't anything that I didn't understand. I just didn't like hearing what I was hearing. And so I needed somebody to help me to learn to love the Bible. And so it's our job to help teach our children to love the Word of God. We've got to teach them God's word diligently. It says teach the word to them diligently in the Shema passage. God expected parents to teach their kids the Bible and to not just pawn it off on somebody else. I'm thankful. I believe we've got one of the best children's ministry in, in America. I believe that wholeheartedly. Our folks love kids, love Jesus, love teaching the Bible. Uh, our, so many people in our children's ministry have grown in children's ministry uh, into better Christians, better leaders. I love it. And so, but the thing about it is, is that I'm thankful for that, but that's not the only education that your kids need from the Bible in a given week. They need to hear it at home. They need to hear it on the way to school. They need to hear it when they get home from school. They need to hear it around the dinner table. We're going to be talking about the Bible. Hey, what'd you get from today's message? And uh, what's one of the things that God wants, ways that God wants you to grow this week? We have to teach that word to them diligently. Turn back to Ezra chapter five, or Ezra eight, if you would. We got to give them direction. We do that by teaching them to love God and love the Word of God. But we also have to provide protection. If you see verse number 21, we afflict ourselves before God to seek a right way and for 
our little ones and all of our substance. Their substance was a temptation for robbers. They had their gold and silver. They're taken back to the temple as they rebuild it. They're going to place their things back in the temple. It's estimated by some theologians that the, the stuff that they were carrying back to Jerusalem had a, a cost of about $3 million. And you've got a bunch of Jews out in the middle of the desert hauling $3 million worth of goods on an 800-mile journey. There was a temptation there for robbers to come. And, and so Ezra prayed that God would give them safe passage, that God would keep them safe, that God would protect them. And while you and I aren't traveling through the wilderness with $3 million worth of stuff, we've been given something much more precious to protect. That's the hearts and minds of children. Here's the thing. Satan wants to ruin your kids. Guaranteed. You might be strong in your faith. You might be solid in your doctrine. You might be uh, walking with Jesus, but your kids aren't there yet. And Satan has the opportunity to ruin that. And so it's our job to make sure that that doesn't happen. Satan has resources at his disposal to do that. We have to protect our kids' minds. We've got to make difficult decisions sometimes. We've got to say, hey, I don't want you watching that TV show. You need to turn that off. Hey, I don't think that type of music honors the Lord. Hey, it might not even be bad music, but it's not the type of music that draws your heart towards the heart of God, and we probably shouldn't listen to that. I, I, I hesitated to say something like this, but I'm just going to say it anyways. I'm not, this is not a blanket statement for anybody else. I'm just telling you how our family processes through stuff. Um, our family had gone to San Diego a couple of weeks ago, and, and my wife had gone ahead of me, um, and so I had to stay back, and then I left out on a Sunday night uh, to, to meet her there. And so she's there on a Thursday in San Diego by herself with our girls, and she says, hey, I don't have anything going on today. I think I might take the kids to Disney. And I said, ah, I don't think so. And she's like, why? <sighs> Babe, like, I don't feel good about giving hundreds of dollars to an organization that is anti-Christ and anti-Christian values. Like, it's not a matter of like, hey, I think they're, they're doing things a little bit different now. It's a matter of they literally have an agenda to indoctrinate our children. Like, they don't even say ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls anymore at the park. Like, uh, I don't have a good feeling about that, and I just wouldn't feel right about doing that. And she said, well, what if I want to go? Then I suggest you sign up for an Uber account and earn your own money because you're not spending my money to go to Disney. And she was like, what? And she was like, does that mean we're never going to Disney again? I, I can't say that. I really can't. And I'm not telling you, don't ever go to Disneyland because you're, you don't love Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for our family, we had to come to a point where it's just like, I don't really feel great about that. I don't. And the newest movie that the Disney just came out with, the, the main character is, is homosexual and he has lustful dreams about another boy. He's a boy, he has dreams about another boy. And it's just like, no, I just can't. I don't feel good about that. I don't feel right about that. And so that's the decision that we made to protect our children. Now, what you do with that, totally between you and God. I'm not telling you how to live your life. I don't think you're a terrible Christian if you do things differently. I'm just telling you, for our family, this is just kind of how we process through some things. Do we still have a Disney Plus subscription? We do, and I'm, I'm debating on what we do with that. Because again, for me, I want to, first of all, honor God with everything that I have. Secondly, I want to walk in wisdom with everything that I do. Thirdly, I want to protect my children from things that want to actively bring them harm. And I just kind of weigh that out, what that looks like. 
And so I'm asking you to walk in wisdom, to protect the minds of your children, to protect the hearts of your children. Hey, whatever goes into their heart is eventually going to come out in their words, their actions, their deeds, their worldview of the way that things really are. And we got to protect that. There's a um, family several years ago uh, that was a Buddhist family and they wanted their daughter to be exposed to major world religions. And so uh, the, she was a, the, the, the parents were Buddhist. They sent their daughter to a Catholic school. And then they came here and asked if their daughter could be a part of our Wednesday night children's program. And I was just like, absolutely. And the parents says, we just want to give her all of her options and let her make up whatever decision she wants to make. And that sounds like really like inclusive and diverse and things like that. But I thought to myself, that's the dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. Foolish, foolish. I don't use the word dumb. <laughs> foolish. I'm going to let a nine-year-old choose a path that will shape the rest of their lives. Like, when my kids were nine. They didn't know what they wanted for lunch, much less like what they wanted out of life, right? But I was thankful to, to take to take this girl into our children's ministry and teach her the Bible and show her how great Jesus was and teach her the gospel all day long. But the idea of a parent who would turn a nine-year-old loose and just say, hey, kind of pick whatever you want. Like, like eternity is like the food court at the mall. Like, I don't know, do you want this today or do you want that over there? Totally up to you. Here's $20, you'll get whatever you want. That's not how we're called to train our children. And so we gotta protect their hearts. We gotta protect their innocence. Man, for me as a pastor, this is one of the things that, that, I, that no lie keeps me up at night. All of our children's ministry leaders have background checks. If you're going to work with kids, you've got a background investigation that has to take place. We make sure that we've got 1,001 rules in place. This past year, uh, I had a meeting with all of our folks that were going to a junior camp and um, teen camp. And they said, oh, you know, pastor, what are some of your concerns and things that you hope for? Hey, look. I hope kids stay up, and if kids, you know, put shaving cream on other kids' hands, I don't care about that. If kids, you know, have flashlights under their, their sheets after lights out, I don't care about that. Uh, my primary concern is that something would ever happen sexually to any of these kids. I would never be able to be the same ever again. Whatever we got to do to protect that, I'm on that. If that means we have somebody sitting in a chair while other kids sleep, I'm for that. You put up trip wires and alarms, I'm for all that, right? I mean, like booby trap or like the, the floor falls in if you try to get, I'm all for that. I'm all for it. Because we are obligated to protect these children's innocence. That's why our kids don't go to sleepovers at people's houses that we don't know and trust. My kids have been to like three sleepovers in their life because they're, the parents of the kids are parents that I would trust with my own life. But like, oh, Joey from school wants to have a bunch of people over his house. I don't know Joey. I don't know Joey's parents. And there's no way in the world you're going over to his house ever. It's not going to happen. Why? Because I want to protect my children. I want to protect other people's children. Their innocence. They only get to be a kid once. And look, the, the world that we're living in makes kids grow up way too fast. Way too fast. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to go shopping for clothes for a 13-year-old girl. But let me just tell you, look, she's 13, not 23, trying to catch a man, okay? Like, I don't, I don't understand it. 
You know, again, when we, we sexualize children at seven, eight, nine years old, there's something wrong with the world that we live in today. We want to protect our children from that garbage and allow them the opportunity to grow up and be kids. And so, again, we're going we're gonna to be seen as prudes in the world that we live in today. Oh, my goodness, are you serious? You don't let your kids shop at Hop Topic? Absolutely not. Oh, my goodness, are you serious? You wouldn't let your kids wear X, Y, or Z? I won't because I'm going to hold the line that it's my responsibility to protect them. And here's the, here's the counter-argument to that. Well, you know, as soon as your kids are out of your house, they're going to be watching R-rated movies, smoking pot, drinking, wearing booty shorts, and, and hanging all over other dudes, right? You know that's going to happen the second they get out of the house. Here's my thought to that. If I have discipled my children, rather than giving them a list of rules, by the grace of God, they won't desire those things because they're committed followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if I just give my kids a list of rules, hey, you better be back by 10 o'clock. You're not wearing that garbage out of my house. You don't hang out with them kids because they're trouble. And I just give a bunch of rules without a relationship. Well, that's going to breed rebellion for sure. But if I disciple my children and teach them what it means to be a committed follower of Christ, I hope that when they turn 18, they'll say, hey, I don't really want what the world has to offer because Jesus is better. That's the goal. We have to fight. This is going to sound strange, but we have to fight for the children of others. Look, there are kids who will come to Huikala next Sunday, probably even Wednesday night, that this is the only place in the world that they feel loved. This is it. They don't get love at home. They don't get love from family members. They don't get love from their teacher at school. This is it for them. And look, if you see me when I, whenever I'm out on Sunday, I'm always high-fiving every kid that I can get around. I'm always trying to talk to them, ask them how church was, because I want them to know this is the place where you're loved. You know why? Because Jesus loves you. And again, people say, well, I don't really have kids, so that's not my thing. No, no, you get the opportunity to love other people's children, to show them the love of Jesus Christ, to model Christ's likeness for them, to show them how a church family operates. And by the grace of God, there's going to be some kids that grow up one day that say, hey, the only place where I ever felt loved was in that church. And we'll know that we did our job. And so... Don't abdicate the responsibility of children to somebody else just because, well, I'm single, I'm, I'm not married, or I don't have kids. No, it's all of our responsibility collectively as the church that Jesus started to love and teach children the Word of God. Finally, we have to model dedication. When I think of verse number 23 from Ezra, chapter 8, so we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. These kids in Ezra's day got to see a group of adults that were serious about their faith and says, hey guys, we're not going to eat lunch today, we're not going to eat lunch for tomorrow because God needs to come through for us, and then they saw God come through. I wonder what that did for their faith. Hey, I remember when we prayed for that and God actually did that. Like, I remember that. I think of even for us as a church, we're only nine years old, we're still young. 
But I remember when we came over here when this was just all concrete floors. There wasn't any AC. There's busted concrete all over the place. I think we came in here one time. There's an excavator uh, parked in here. And we, we gathered around as a church family and we prayed. Some of those kids that prayed in here that night are already adults now. And I hope they remember when they step in here, like, hey, I remember this. Hey, I remember when we used to meet over there and that was the main auditorium. And they see God move. And they see the dedication of God's people. Look, I hope all of our kids that are in the teen group Whenever they grow up to be adults and they have their own kids and things like that, they remember like, oh man, I remember Mr. Alex and Mr. Jordan and here they are 20 years later still walking with Jesus. That's so awesome. We get the opportunity to model for children what dedication looks like. That means that you and I must live a real, radical, strong, resolute faith. We got to show them what authentic Christianity looks like. I'm convinced of this. The majority of Americans have never seen an authentic, real deal committed Christian. They've seen hypocritical Christians. They've seen judgmental Christians. They've seen marginal Christians who are Christians on Sunday. But I submit the idea that the majority of Americans have never seen seen what sold out Christianity actually looks like. I would also go so far as to say that the majority of Americans have never been a part of a loving, caring, committed church family community either. They've gone to church before. They've been to places where they have a really great worship band or or, uh, the pastor's going to be in the lobby after the church signing new copies of his new book that just came out and uh, things like that, maybe. But like part of like a, a family, like... I bear your burden, you bear mine, family kind of stuff. Majority of people don't know that. Here's the great thing. We get to model what that looks like. Look, the greatest gift that you can leave your children is a legacy of your faith. Best thing ever. My kids already know this. This is not a surprise to them. When I die, there's not any money to be had, okay? It's just not. I got some some watches that I've acquired over the years that are of really little or no value monetarily. They have some sentimental value to me because of who bought them for me or any situation, but I don't really have like any fancy jewelry to be had. I don't have any, you know, big pieces of land that I'm going to give to anybody, but here's what my kids will get. A dad who gave them a real faith and who lived it out was a real deal. And they get to take that on. They get to invest that in their families. And look, if you were to ask them, they're probably not wise enough where they would say that they would choose if this is really what they want. If I was given the opportunity to choose $100,000 when your dad dies or have a legacy of faith, most of them would probably choose $100,000. We're working on that. (laughs) But what's going to be most beneficial for them in the long run? A legacy of faith. Hey, my dad was a real deal. He wasn't perfect. He prayed with us. He led us by the grace of God. When he messed up, he fessed up. And man, if the doors were open at church, we were always there. Man, if that's what my kids can say about me, I I think I'll have done a pretty good job. Because I think it's what God wants me to do. Now, does God want me to leave things to to my kids that they can remember me by? Sure. The Bible says that uh, a wise man leaves a heritage for his children and his children's children. I don't think that's a ton of money or anything like that. I think it's something that they can latch on to and remember you by. 
I want my kids to remember me for my faith. That's the best gift that you can give your kids by being the real deal. My, my dad, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. He has a high school education, never went to a day of college in his life. But back in the early 1990s, my dad built an electric truck out of a Ford Ranger uh, and golf cart batteries um, back before electric vehicles were a thing. Uh, just absolute like genius level. My dad taught me nothing whatsoever about cars. Nothing. Like, uh, I know how to plug in the, the, uh, the sensor and read the codes and then, then Google the codes to find out what they mean. But, like, misfire cylinder three means nothing to me outside of, like, maybe a spark plug, maybe a spark plug wire. I don't know. I don't know a lot about that. But you know what my dad did teach me? He taught me the value of a hard day's work. He taught me how to love people. And my dad taught me to tithe. <laughs> I think my dad won, you know? I still have to take my car to the mechanic when it, when it breaks down. I could change my own brakes, but I don't trust myself. Uh, it's one of those safety of flight issues, you know, like, hey, if this is a safety of flight thing, it's not my, my, my jam. I could if I wanted to, but I don't want to. But my dad taught me the things that mattered. I, I remember my dad was self-employed. He owned a, a body shop for, man, 45 years. If things were really bad financially, on a Sunday morning, when the offering basket went by, he always got in his left breast pocket and put a check in. When things were bad, bad. When things were good financially, offering plate would come by on a Sunday morning, left breast pocket, put a check in. Every week without fail, 52 weeks a year. And I just automatically grew up thinking, Christians tithe. Always. No lie, Angela and I were married. We were in a church. Uh, and again, when we started attending church, we started tithing. And I was shocked to find out that there were Christians who didn't actually tithe. Like, that made my head want to explode. Like, I thought that was like a, what every Christian did. Why? Because I saw it modeled in my dad. My dad taught me that. I, I, don't, I don't know nothing about rebuilding transmissions. I don't know anything about gear ratios and rear ends. My dad does, but he said, ah, those things aren't really all that important. You can figure that out later. Here's what you need to know. And so my dad passed on me and my mom as well, a legacy of faith that's carried me this distance. And we place our children, final thought here tonight, we place our children in great danger when we have a half-hearted or non-existent commitment to the things of God. Look, if faith is not important to you, it's probably not gonna be really important to your kids. It's always funny to me. Have you ever met those, like, kids? They're, like, seven, eight, nine years old that are, like, die-hard, like, Dallas Cowboy fans. Like, I mean, like, die-hard. It's like, okay, you're, like, seven. You don't know anything about anything, right? You don't know yet that they call them America's team, even though the majority of America hates their guts. Like, you don't understand. You can't even comprehend that yet, right? I'm sorry. It just it needs to be said sometimes. That's all. Like, like kid, you're eight and you don't even know who Troy Aikman is, right? You have no idea who Emmett Smith is. You've never heard of Michael Irvin. Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. Where did they get this fervor and fire as a seven-year-old for the Dallas Cowboys? I guarantee you they got it from where? Their dad. Or their mom. Or their parents. Or their grandpa. Or some somebody taught them that, right? 
So your kids automatically latch on to whatever you determine is important. Hey, kids, it's football season. Don't talk in the house. Keep it quiet. Mama, keep the wings coming because it's football season, right? (laughs) Hey, no lie, that type of home breeds a certain type of child. Just be aware of that. Hey, kids, could you keep it down in the other room? I'm trying to study my Bible right now. That type of home breeds a certain type of child. Hey, kids, I was going over the groups, the, the question for our small groups this week, and we came across this question. What are your thoughts on this, kids? That type of home breeds a certain type of child. Hey, tell me three good things that God did for you this week. Hey, tell me something that you got a reason to praise God for today. Hey, what's an area in your life where you feel like God wants you to grow this week? That breeds a certain type of child, which is the type of children that we want. But it requires us as leaders to be spiritual first. That's the hard part. As a leader, you cannot lead someone to a place that you're not yourself. Oh, my kids to grow up and love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? I just want my kids to grow up and obey God. Do you obey God? I want my kids to... Honor God with their sexual purity. Are you honoring God with your sexual purity? Again, we can't lead our children to a place where we're not ourselves. Because if there's any demographic that's really good at sniffing out a hypocrite, it's kids, 100% of the time. They know when you're faking it. So we've got to be the real deal. And so again, if you're sitting here tonight going, phew, I'm glad I don't have kids. No, no, no. Children in our church are watching you. How seriously do you take your faith? It's going to show. It's obvious. And I want to, I want these children seated in this room, the children that come on a Sunday morning, I want them to see, hey, I was a part of a church family that was alive, where people were happy, where I saw joy, where people loved me, where people prayed for me, where people invited strangers over to their house for Thanksgiving, like, who does that? It was a church where people didn't think twice about going to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Like, that was just the culture. Like, that's how I grew up. I want my kids to say that. I don't want my kids to grow up and say, I went to a church where it was all about how you looked or what kind of car you drove or how good you looked on the outside or how popular you were, how much money you made or uh, how, how many followers you had on social media. Oh, there's plenty of churches like that. God forbid that we should ever become another. Let's be the real deal. And you know what's going to require? Some sacrifice on our behalf. I want to fast and pray for that type of church. I want to fast and pray that my family would be that type of family. I want to willingly afflict myself and pray that God would give me the wisdom to make a clear path for my kids and their faith. That God would protect them and protect their hearts and protect their minds and help me to... Teach them diligently the word of God and that I would be an example that they could follow. Let's be that type of church for the next generation. Thanks for joining us for the Huikala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.